We are halfway through August. The beginning of the school year draws nearer. Uncertainty still hangs in the air over the capital region in many realms. But in other ways, we're actually getting back to some semblance of normalcy. On this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over this week's top stories. Truth of the matter is that people just love their Trader Joe's news. We'll learn about one reporter's investigation of local urgent care chains charging uninsured patients for COVID testing while taking millions in federal aid. I mean, the question I asked all of them was, why are you not enrolling in this program that would give free COVID testing to uninsured people? We'll say goodbye to our visiting Hearst fellows. That journalism was really meaningful to me. And live theater is back. Some men are born to live at doing what they please. Richer than the bees are in honey. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. A look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Let's start with a look at what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. Once again, we are here with Casey Seiler. We're going to go through the top news of the week, what we saw in the paper and online, and uh, perhaps maybe one of the least newsworthy stories, but certainly has national appeal. Um, Our own Governor Cuomo was uh, selected to speak at the Democratic National Convention coming up. What uh, What do you make of that? Well, not surprising. I mean, he is, of course, a big blue state governor. Uh, he's had a long relationship with Joe Biden. They've been they've been very supportive and friendly of of one another. And of course, he is sort of as as we've kind of described him. Kayla Harris kind of mentioned this in her profile just a couple of weeks ago. He he kind of became in a sense America's governor through the early weeks of the of the pandemic. He's kind of a a matinee figure in a lot of ways, and we'll get to some of the ways in which. Perhaps he is not later in this discussion, but his profile, of course, grew by leaps and bounds over the course of the five months of the pandemic. Uh, And so it's not surprising that he's been given a a really good slot. I was at the 2016 Democratic Convention in Philadelphia where Cuomo spoke, and I want to say it was in the late afternoon, early evening. (laughs) There was uh, a lot of sort of chatter within the uh, the arena, perhaps that Cuomo is not used to hearing when he is speaking. So uh, I think this will be a little bit further into prime time, which I'm sure he's going to be psyched about. Do you think he's kind of thinking about his dad's speech in 1984 and maybe trying to match it? I think any time that anybody named Cuomo speaks at a Democratic National Convention, they are thinking about Mario Cuomo's stirring 1984, um, you know, City on the Hill speech, which is one of the great sort of liberal uh, democratic orations of the 80s, of course, a time when, you know, the Reagan revolution was in full flower and there was Mario Cuomo, governor of New York, giving a concrete example of what true inspirational liberal oratory can do. 
Uh, also in the news this week, the ex-CEO of My Payroll HR pled guilty. Uh, can you kind of go through what happened and maybe how, what transpired to get us where we are with this news? Yes, Michael Mann, uh, who was the leader of uh, My Payroll HR, a company that went belly up early September of last year, leaving thousands of people across the country, not only without their paychecks, but in some cases with negative balances, finally pleaded out in federal court. Um, he is facing more than two decades um, if the judge takes the highest potential sentence. He is, he is likely to, to serve far less. His lawyer made a case that there's another story to be told here. But what's laid out in court papers expertly described by our business writer, Larry Rulison, uh, in Thursday's edition is a scheme that lasted more than a decade in which Michael Mann, with the help of co-conspirators, basically ginned up successful companies out of documents that were either partially or wholly fraudulent. He would use uh, documents showing that his various companies were owed monies by client firms and uh, use that as uh, collateral to extract millions of dollars in loans from banks, including uh, Pioneer Bank based right here in the capital region, which took a significant haircut due to its, um, its business with Mr. Mann. It was also somewhat remarkable because we had not been able to get a picture of Michael Mann until his appearance in court and outside of court on Wednesday. And of course, because of coronavirus, he was wearing a mask. So you win some, you lose some, Jess. <laughs> so close, so close. Speaking of coronavirus, because we can't let a week pass without talking about that on some level, and also going back to Cuomo a little bit, there is some question about what's happening in nursing homes uh, with folks who have contracted COVID. Can you talk to us a little bit about what's going on there? Right. Well, the, the push continues for the state health department, including Commissioner Howard Zucker, to release the data that the state has that says exactly how many nursing home residents died after they were transferred out of nursing homes and put into hospitals. The number that the state has released, 6,500, is certainly bad enough in terms of deaths of nursing home residents, but um, many, many people um, believe, and the state pretty much has acknowledged, that that is uh, an undercount of the number of nursing home residents who died of COVID-19 because the state stopped counting them if they died after being transferred to hospitals. We ran a very, very good uh, ProPublica story from Joe Sexton and Joaquin Sapien. We occasionally partner with ProPublica, and this was a, a perfect example of that. They wrote about a nursing home in Valencia in Columbia County, a very small community in Columbia County, where uh, there were 18 deaths uh, in hospitals over the course of five weeks of residents of a single nursing home that were transferred out. And the Columbia County uh, Health Commissioner told ProPublica that it appeared very much that these patients were simply being shipped out to hospitals only to die. Many of them had DNRs, and there seemed to be kind of very little point in moving somebody who was dying, essentially, out to a hospital if they had a DNR. Of course, 
the head of this nursing home insists that it was only the, um, you know, the, the proper care of residents that was um, top of mind. But unfortunately, uh, the health commissioner, Howard Zucker, is really not doing a very good job of justifying the fact that the state is holding back the numbers of these uh, nursing home residents who died in hospitals. You know, his claims that, well, we're in the middle of a pandemic, we're working on it, we don't want to double count anybody, becomes increasingly feeble when you consider the fact that it's more than a month ago now that the state health department was able to pump out a report that essentially exonerated the department for the policy that it instituted, which demanded that nursing homes take COVID positive patients back. The state's report said, oh no, deaths in nursing homes was not a result of that policy. It was because nursing home staff, as well as visitors, were carrying the virus into those facilities. That, of course, makes uh, staffers and owners of nursing homes rather irate in many cases. And unfortunately, it's a, it's a case that the Cuomo administration falls into sometimes of uh, having a true horror of an independent investigation. There's obviously a, a, lot of, uh, a lot there, a lot of layers there, and we're going to be following that one closely in the future. Um, last but not least, so there was a rumor floating around this week. There is a building or a sort of a structure that's going up in Half Moon uh, that may or may not be a Trader Joe's. What's the latest on that? Jess, the Times Union doesn't report rumors. Come on. Um, <laughs> What we have reported is that the planning board uh, for the town of Half Moon has approved a site plan for a specialty grocery store right by Half Moon Crossing, or I guess it's part of Half Moon Crossing. And that site and those plans are suspiciously similar <laughs> to, to the plans for other uh, Trader Joe's outlets. And uh, needless to say, this was, I'd like to say that one of our deep investigations, <laughs> you know, blew up the internet. <laughs> this week but the truth of the matter is that people just love their trader joe's news and um and so we'll be we'll be following that plan as it as it moves ahead it's interesting when planning boards sort of approve these unnamed uh, retail outlets kind of sight unseen because it is like a rorschach test for you know what's the store that you or your family would most like to see in a local mall a local you know big box space or something like that so Sure. Once again, we've got, a, we've got a great big question mark hanging over a local shopping center. Everybody's so tight-lipped, but I can tell you, you know, if the news does break that it's truly a Trader Joe's, we're going to be prepared for another uh, onslaught of traffic because this will be of great importance to a lot of people. I love those little samosas. Earlier this year, Congress allocated billions of dollars for local health care providers to provide free coronavirus tests to people without health insurance. But as the Times Union's Chris Bragg reported recently, several upstate New York-based urgent care chains are making the uninsured pay the bill. I talked to him to find out more about his investigation. Tell us about this story. Just give us kind of the synopsis. Well, I, I got a tip that people were having to pay for COVID testing at uh, urgent care clinics. And I just basically had the question of why that was, given that Congress passed a bill stating that the uninsured should not have to pay for COVID testing. Um, it obviously seems like a pretty 
public good for that to happen for everybody who needs a test to be able to get one, considering that it's a transmissible virus and everybody says widespread testing is needed to combat it. So it was just a story trying to figure out uh, the finances of how that was working. I eventually found that um, these urgent care clinics in the capital region, but really all across the country as well, I'm sure, are able to take money to support themselves for their COVID-related expenses, but are not uh, enrolling in this program that gives free testing to the uninsured, which would make less money for them. Now, you had found two individuals who had gone to the facilities that you looked at uh, to be tested and then were charged in, in various ways. How did you find those people? And, and when, when you did, how did you kind of approach the reporting? I found out because one of their mothers emailed me. They just, I guess, had heard that their, their kid had been charged $150, $200 to get a COVID test and how um, concerned with collecting that money the staff at the Well Now on Western Avenue in Gelderland had seemed. So it, it came from one of their parents. They gave me their phone number and I called uh, and uh, they were eager to talk about it. So um, it wasn't too much of a challenge to get that. Sure. And sort of without giving away your actual story, because we want people to go to timesunion.com to read it, <laughs> what was kind of the outcome of their, their situations? It's not totally clear. One of them was who had symptoms and went in to get tested, Sienna. She uh, had to pay, I believe, $150 and is still waiting to see if she gets more of a bill. She also had a strep throat test. And her roommate, uh, Ashley, had to pay $200 even though she didn't have any symptoms. So they were kind of confused as to how the billing was being done and didn't get a lot of answers. But, you know, the, the bottom line is it could have been free for both of them if these clinics, including Well Now, community care physicians and um, Albany Med Emergent Care locally uh, wanted to uh, enroll in this program, but they would make less money because the federal government only pays Medicare rates to pay back the companies for treating people, whereas charging somebody out of pocket, like I said, they can make $200 or, or more. Now, what did these places, what did they say to you? I mean, you called them up, right, and just kind of asked them point blank. What what did these organizations, what was their response? I mean, the question I asked all of them was, why are you not enrolling in this program that would give free COVID testing to uninsured people? Just a pretty simple question. And it, I didn't really get a straight answer to that from any of them initially. Well, now just completely dismissed the question and gave me some sort of platitude about how they had good service or something. Albany Med was not answering that question either. Community care didn't answer it more. Eventually they said the $45 reimbursement, for instance, for doctor's visits that they would get for uninsured people uh, through this federal program that Congress passed was not enough reimbursement to cover their costs, um, which is a legitimate argument, I guess, even though they have been getting also money from the federal government and taxpayers to cover some of those costs. But in any case, the thing that I was asking them following up was well, how much does it cost for you to have a patient in for a short doctor's appointment that then allows you to give a COVID test on your company's policies? And they wouldn't tell me how much it does cost. So how much profit are they making? How much could they charge just to cover their costs? That would be relevant information to determine the degree to which it's legitimate that they couldn't afford to give these tests, but they weren't giving out that kind of information. So, hmm, so it created a lot more questions than answers for you. 
Yeah, the, the back and forth with these spokespeople went over the course of weeks because the story got just delayed because of scheduling issues. So there was a lot of chance to follow up and community care physicians is upset with the story and trying to uh, write a letter to the editor, possibly get corrections, although I don't know what they've cited that's incorrect. But in any case, there were weeks of going back and forth and a lot of questions went unanswered. So, uh, you know, if you're going to complain after the fact, it would it would be nice to at least answer the questions beforehand that I'm posing. So, That is part of being an investigative reporter, right? You, you have to face those situations a lot, right? Uh, getting stonewalled, yeah. I, <laughs> I've definitely been known to have a bit of a temper with people who don't answer questions, especially if they're well-paid, taxpayer-funded government spokespeople with, with people in private business like this. I, I consider a little bit less of an obligation on their end to answer questions because they, uh, you know, they're a private entity. But um, so there was no real uh, loss of temper on this story, but it can't happen. Now, when you identified these three uh, facilities and the organizations behind them, you know, how did, were they the only ones in the region that, that weren't doing this or did they stand out somehow? Or, you know, how did you come to kind of narrow in on these three? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I looked at the list that the Department of Health puts out of COVID testing sites. You basically search by zip code and then it shows the sites around you. So I did that for my own zip code. And then just uh, going down the list, you can see further and further away from you. So I basically went through all the sites in the capital region and then started calling up the sites and just saying, how much is it to get a test if you're uninsured? And uh, basically starting that way. And so I was able to figure out which ones were totally free and which ones uh, were charging. It's definitely important to note that this issue I identified in the capital region that I just sort of stumbled upon, you know, that they were getting grants for themselves, but then not enrolling in this program for the uninsured. That's a problem that could exist anywhere in the country. And I'm, I'm almost certain is happening all over the country. And that was noted actually in a Brookings Institute report. So I, I focused on the ones I knew about here in the capital region, but this is arguably a flaw in the programs that Congress uh, put together um, where companies can take money to help themselves with their COVID costs, but it's optional for them to enroll in the program helping the uninsured. And, uh, you know, a lot of companies just, I guess they're choosing, you know, their bottom line over sort of any broader societal concerns or maybe could argue that they've lost money during this COVID crisis. And so they're justified in charging as much as they can. But, uh, you know, again, those answers weren't really that specific in terms of the reasons why they're not enrolling. So I'm sort of speculating. Now, are you going to continue down this line of reporting? You know, uh, I'm not sure. It's kind of random for me. I, I'm not a health reporter generally. I've kind of lately just been diving into whatever seems interesting. And obviously, this is the story everybody's on right now, too, is COVID. But uh, uh, maybe if there's more to be done, I'm, I'm getting tips that people are having trouble also with delays and getting in their test results um, at a number of different places. So that could be a follow-up. I think that's been written about more, but we'll see what happens. If anybody has any tips, please let me know. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this story. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. Each year, the Times Union welcomes several Hearst Fellows to the newsroom. 
They're smart, motivated young journalists who do a one-year rotation in Albany covering the capital, business, arts and entertainment, and more. Sadly, we have to say goodbye to these fellows who've been with us over the past year. I sat down with our three outgoing fellows, Rebecca Carballo, Kayla Harris, and Michael Williams, to take a look back at their year at the Times Union. What are the highlights? What were the highs from your time here? What were your favorite stories, your favorite memories, all that kind of stuff? And I'll start with, I guess I'll start with Becca because I'm looking at you right now. Tell me, what was, what was your favorite part of this year? What are you taking away from this? Uh, I just, I've got to cover um, immigration and just be on the seat at a really exciting time in a really exciting place. There was a lot happening with like DACA and there was a lot happening on the state level with the green light law. And then, so I really appreciate the kind of work I got to do while I was here. And that sort of made it on the work end very fulfilling. And then I also think that I'm going to get a little sappy here. It was really great, like working with everyone at the TU and meeting Michael and Kayla, because going to a new place in a new city, it's always really hard to adjust. But then you have two people who are in your same boat and you're sort of facing the same thing together. And that's um, that's been really great. Kayla, what what about you? What What are your highlights from the year? I would kind of second everything that Becca said, especially on the person front. In my beat, it was also a really exciting time to be covering state politics right now. Um, and I also was able to do a lot of really meaningful work. I think this job was very fulfilling for me, especially in the work that I did uh, surrounding the Child Victims Act and, and child sexual abuse and that sort of thing. I kind of took on this semi-beat that involved predators and especially the the diocese and the, the church. And so I was able to do some work with priests who had abused children and, and that that journalism was really meaningful to me. And yeah, it was it was a really interesting time to be in state politics, to cover state politics. So one of your last hurrahs here, you wrote a, a very uh, big piece about Governor Cuomo. Do you want to plug that a little bit? Oh yeah, I'll plug it. Go read it. Um, <laughs> I think the headline is something about how how the COVID crisis revealed Cuomo's strengths flaws, I think is the headline. Um, and I basically spent about a month researching Cuomo as a person, his prior experiences, his uh, personality, his job, his relationships to others, and then how all of those things came to light in the context of this crisis. And so it's really fascinating because you're seeing someone who has always been this way, who has been very focused on the facts or whatever, and who is a micromanager who is at his best when he's handling a crisis. And this is just the crisis of all crises for this governor. And in every way possible, it's put his strengths and his weaknesses very much at the at the front line of everything. So spent a lot of time on that. And it was a fun piece to write. And it was my final swan song, I guess. <laughs> you can read that and all of the pieces that you guys have written at timesunion.com. Uh, Michael, what about you? What were your highlights? Sure. So, I mean, just to kind of piggyback on what both Kayla and Becca said, uh, definitely the people I met were the highlight of my, my time in Albany. You know, just an incredible newsroom, an incredible group of people working in really, really uh, uncertain and, and strange times. So it was really interesting to, you know, first spend six months in the newsroom, see how they work there. And then uh, six months at 
my apartment and see, just see how everybody uh, sort of adapted to, to that situation and started working from there. Sure. Now, none of you are natives to this region. Obviously, you've all come to this region um, from other places. What if specifically about living here, never mind your work, what specifically about living here are you going to miss the most? Kayla, what about you? What, what will you miss most about living here and working here? <laughs> I will definitely miss my proximity to mountains. I love this, how close I am to, to outdoor activities and, and that sort of thing. I'm from New Jersey, so I'm not, I'm not too far away. And then after that, I lived in Washington, D.C. for a bit. So um, I came to kind of a half city, half suburb area from a big city and then also from coming from the suburbs. So it was a good mix of both of those things. I will miss that uh, because I'm heading to another city. You're heading to Texas, right? Yeah, I'm heading to Austin. So another big city, um, which will be exciting. And I'm excited for that. But I hear there's nature there, but I don't know. You know, I guess there's nature everywhere. I, I, I should go outside more. <laughs> it's a different kind of nature. I, I've never been there, but I have heard such things as well. Um, Michael, what about you? What will you miss most about living and working here? Well, before last August, I've never lived anywhere besides Florida. So um, just kind of seeing uh, a different climate and a different environment was, was really nice. Um, I, I can't say I'm going to miss the snow. I can't say I'm going to miss, you know, it being so cold that your eyes started watering and then your tears freeze. But yeah, I mean, I'll just, I'll definitely miss uh, the environment. Um, you know, there's everything you could ever want is within a pretty, pretty short drive away from Albany. Uh, whether you want to go to Boston, whether you want to go to New York City, whether you want to go to Montreal, and then you have the mountains, the rivers, the lakes, and all the nature. Um, so I'll definitely, I'll definitely miss it. Sure, and you're heading out west, right? To San Francisco? Yes, that's correct. Echo, what about you? What what are you going to miss most about living and working here? I'm definitely going to miss, like, that Albany has, like, such, you know, a rich history and culture and, like, coming from outside of Albany, I guess I didn't realize what, like, how what a diverse place it would be, and that was, like, a really cool thing to witness, all the cultures here, and I am going to um, miss definitely time, the Times Union, and we have, we mentioned before how it's really neat how you can be, you can drive a little, and there's, like, great places to go hiking, or you can drive some, you know, a few hours south, and you can be in a city, or you can go to Boston, and it's, everything's just really accessible, which is cool. Sure, and you're headed to Houston, right? Yep, um, it is going to be my first time living in Texas, so don't know what to expect, but I'm very excited about it, and yeah, I'm looking forward to it. You know, you're moving on, this is going to be the last year of your fellowship. Uh, where, where do you see yourself in five years? What are your goals? Becca, we'll start with you. Yeah, I definitely want to be still working in newspapers uh, or journalism in some sort of capacity, but I'm definitely hoping I'm going to be a reporter at a daily newspaper. Excellent, excellent. Uh, Kayla, what about you? Yeah, I love print journalism. I want to keep writing. I want to stay in political journalism, so someone hire me after this to become a political journalist. Thank you. <laughs> Michael, what about you? Well, if you would have asked me that question in February, I would have said that I want to be traveling and reporting overseas uh, somewhere. But, you know, with the pandemic, I'm just not sure how realistic it is going to be to be traveling um, a lot within the next few years. So I guess like the, the bare minimum is to be uh, employed in journalism. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'd like to stay in San Francisco. I like the West Coast so far, but yeah, it's kind of it's kind of hard to see so far into the future when we're in an industry with uh with a lot of uncertainty right now. 
Well, I wish all of you guys the best of luck. Uh, we'll miss you. We'll miss you, but we'll be watching out for your bylines because you're going to other Hearst properties. Right. Thank, Thank you, Jessica. You. After the break, we finally go back to the theater. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. It's been about five months since Broadway went dark. The COVID-19 pandemic shuttered theaters and concert venues with no reopening date in sight. The performing arts as we knew them essentially came to a standstill. But we're starting to see a glimpse of a bright spot on the horizon. Two theater companies in the Berkshires have gotten the green light from Actors' Equity, the largest labor union for theatrical performers, to get back on stage, albeit in a slightly modified way. And Times Union's Steve Barnes was there for it. He attended two shows in the last week, and I was dying to know about his experience. When wilt thou save the people, O God of mercy, when? Not kings and lords, but nations, not thrones and crowns, but men. You have done something that very few people in the United States have had the chance to do at this point in time. You went to the theater. Amazingly, yes. I could always do an immaculate English accent ever since I was a little kid. Normally, at this point in the summer, I probably would have seen 30 to 35 productions. My schedule in past years has been between 40 and 45 theater reviews from Memorial Day to Labor Day. This year, I haven't seen anything since early March because, of course, the world stopped. You know, you know what came along and everything came to a screeching halt. They've tried to do things. They do some Zoom calls and they, they do some readings and they put things online. But it really just was not, it, it's certainly not the same. And as a result of some very hard work on the part of two theaters in the Berkshires, the only two productions in the country that have been approved by Actors' Equity Association, the Actors' Union, are in both in Pittsfield. One is at Barrington Stage Company, which has a one-man show called Harry Clark. The other one is Berkshire Theatre Group's production of Godspell, the 1971 musical that resets the Gospel of Matthew, basically to Jesus and some hippie disciples. Harry Clark is, is, was relatively easy to get equity approval for, starting because uh, the Berkshires have extremely low incidences of COVID-19 cases. And equity is ultra, ultra careful about keeping its members who are actors and stage managers safe. And since Harry Clark is one man show, which means one, and he, he doesn't have to change clothes, there's no intermission, and there's only one stage manager, it's basically two people backstage, and he's on a stage 25 feet from the nearest audience member. That's fine. What do you think of the new house, Phil? Oh, it's lovely, Father. Lois, he's speaking in that goddamn English accent again. Berkshire Theatre Group had a much, much, much bigger challenge. It's incredible what they had to go through. Their actors get tested three times a week. They drive them over, and since there's, there's so few cases, they actually get tested immediately and get results like later that day. The cast all lives together, and they only go from the theater to their house. Their groceries get brought to them, all of that. And then it's a cast of 10, which means they need two stage managers. 
Godspell, if you know anything about the show, I mean, they're, they're basically like a herd of puppies just hugging each other. It's the huggiest show around, and they can't touch each other. You better start. You better start. You better start to learn your lessons well. Amazingly, they have set up these divide rolling dividers with this clear vinyl sheeting there at about a 45 degree angle and they just roll around and anytime somebody is upstage singing with anyone in front of them they roll a divider in front of them so, yes and they all have neck gaiters on and so whenever they walk closer than six feet to one another up up go the neck gaiters flowers of thy heart oh god are they let them not pass like weeds away interactions are gestural when they're talking about baptizing uh, you know somebody is standing behind his divider and he's got a sponge and other people are on the other side of the stage like you know rubbing their hair and being baptized and it, it's all gestural and it's it's really remarkably done and the thing while Harry Clark well done it doesn't really have anything to do with the pandemic this Godspell wholly embraces where we are. The lyricist and, and music writer, uh, Stephen Schwartz, who also did Wicked and Pippin, he rewrote some of the lyrics and there's things that, that specifically refer to COVID and the coronavirus. And then there's other things that echo other contemporary movements. Like at one point, there's a parable and somebody says master and somebody else is like, guys, we shouldn't use the word master anymore. Uh, okay. The show even starts with really personal monologues from each of the actors about what they've gone through this year. You know, there was one of them, she uh, was in her junior year. She had great summer acting jobs lined up. She said January was the best year of her life so far, personally and professionally, and then it all died. What I say in my review that's on online uh, at timesunion.com, I also reviewed Harry Clark, but what I say about Godspell is it's very of the moment. It's almost an instant period piece, an historic artifact, but it's also a really worthwhile evening of theater because they so embrace where we are now and it's a reflection of it. And the knock on Godspell is you, you sit through the parables, even though they teach us how to live, so you can get to the really good music. And Schwartz's music is exceptional. Uh, even if you were never part of a summer theater troupe or a high school theater ensemble or part of a progressive church over the last 50 years, you know some of these songs. They're poppy, they're fun. There was one that actually has a ton of lyrics. It's a duet with one part goes slow and one part goes fast. Some men are sad, Somehow in the past, I performed the fast part. I don't remember where it was. And yet last night, behind my mask, I was singing, some men are born to live at ease, doing what they please, richer than the bees are in honey, never growing old, never feeling cold, full of hot gold from thin air, the best in every town, best to take it. And I was like, my goodness, where did those memories live? It was remarkable. to be oppressed. Yes, it's awful. And the women in this show are outstanding. All of them, just universally. And there's one woman, Alex Getlin, who uh, sings a song with this beautiful, rich alto, and all the other women join her, and the harmonies shimmer. The, uh, the, uh. 
And I sat there thinking, this is what I've been missing. But sitting in the dark, even if it is in a, in a parking lot tent with only 75 people, as opposed to 400 or 2,800 like at Proctor's, this communal tribal experience of people being live in front of you, acting something out, going through it, feeling the emotions. And here, several of the actors, there were just tears in their eyes. And this, I, I don't think this was, this was only acting. This was gratitude to be back on the stage. And I thought, this is really special that these theaters were able to make those significant accommodations, get it done, get the approval from equity. Again, I mean, there are some, some non-equity productions. There are, this isn't the only theater ever in the country, but the only one that's approved by the top actors union. And we've got it here. You've described this very magical, visceral experience that, you know, frankly, I'm just outright jealous of. Like, I miss live theater so much. And, and what a time to experience this. I mean, you describe it so beautifully. But, you know, to take it down to, like, more of a mundane level, like, what was it, what did you have to do to, to experience this? The audience in both of these, you get a, touch, a touchless thermometer, you know, stuck at your forehead. And I, I can tell you, I was 97.5 one night and 97.3 the other. So even though it's, you know, 88 degrees outside, I apparently run low. Uh, <laughs> and the audience masks all the time. And they're strict about this. I mean, if you put the mask below your nose, they will kick you out. I mean, whether you're in a party of two or three or four or one, you know, your group is together. And then the nearest seats are at least six feet. Often it's closer to 10. If you're indoors at the Colonial Theater, you know, there could be 1,300 plus people inside. And here we're in a parking lot with 75. In addition to the temperatures and the mask requirement, and they ask for your validation that you've not been to a state that has, Massachusetts has a prescription against, and they ask if you're feeling healthy, and they take the name and phone number of each member of your party for contact tracing just in case. You know, the closest we stood to anybody else was uh, another critic, and it was intermission, and we were 10 feet apart from him and his companion. In addition to the masks and the temperatures, they've got hand sanitizer. There must have been six hand sanitizer stations. The actors even had some. They pulled it out of their pockets, and they wiped it off. There was a funny minute in the show where instead of canes in this vaudeville number, they used yardsticks. So they extended the yardsticks, and they touched at the end. Boom, six feet. So there really is, this gets to, if this works, if the actors stay healthy, the audience stays healthy, and word gets out that this is possible. I love British accents. Ruth, are you dating anyone? God, honey, I wish. I'm 67 years old, for Christ's sake. I'm not 100. You know, you're talking about the one-man show. Like, do you see this as like a renaissance for one-man shows or one-person shows? Oh, it's so much easier because... You know, I mean, the, the accommodations they have to make for Godspell, oh, just in the staging is, is remarkable. And, you know, stage managers have lots of rules they have to make sure people abide by in any circumstance. That's their job. You know, and among them is also enforcing equity rules. Well, now it's safety rules as well. 
the stage manager was sitting there making sure, nope, when you do that cross, when you walk from there to there, that mask has to come off. You know, initially they were hoping they could stage it, walk on with masks, take them off, just like, you know, or restaurant patrons get to do. Audiences never get to take their masks off. But nope. And they said, nope, we've got to move that barrier. We've got to put the mask on. He's got to stand there. She's got to stand there. We need to put them at different levels. And then the cleaning, they came out and they cleaned that plastic uh, sheeting uh, on the dividers at intermission. That, that is amazing. I mean, this whole thing is, is so amazing to me that you've, you've literally witnessed history right here. I mean, this yeah. is a history making thing. I mean, how do you feel it. about that? How do you feel personally? I mean, this whole huge component of my life that was restaurants, which came back sooner, and theater, which has barely come back, plucked right out. And now here it is back to a little degree and done in such an engaging manner. My biggest regret is that more because of both the seating limitations and the prices, more people won't be able to experience it. Now, you don't see this happening anytime soon in New York, do you? No, I was talking to Maggie Manasinelli Cahill uh, of Capitol Rep in Albany, and she told me actors who regularly work Broadway tell her they're not expecting to be back on stages until maybe fall of 2021. Oh, that's a long time. <laughs> that's a long time. And given how careful, some would say extreme, I say careful, Governor Cuomo has been about allowing things, I just don't see it. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. Enjoy the heat.